Hi, my name is Cecilia Puna, and welcome to this episode of Brave New Women. All around the world, there are amazing, ordinary women doing extraordinary things. Brave New Women is about giving those women a platform and a voice, and it's about changing the way that women are perceived. And it's a way of inspiring all of us to do the things that we've always wanted to do. It's a, really, it's a huge privilege to be talking today to Dr. Kate Forsyth. And Kate is a very well-known Australian author. She's a journalist, or she has been a journalist. She's a poet. Um, when I was researching her um, for this interview, I looked on the Wikipedia site and I, I scrolled down and down and down and I thought, when am I going to get to the end of everything that she's written? She has been so prolific. And not only has she, she been prolific, she's also won, won many awards. Among others, she's won the Australian Aurealis Award for Excellence in Speculative Fiction, not one, not two, but five times. She's recently won the American Library Association Prize for Peter Greens, and she's been shortlisted for her latest book, Searching for Charlotte, for the Indie Prize for Nonfiction in Australia. So welcome, Kate. Thank you so much. I'm so looking forward to chatting today. Kate, I'd like to go back to the very beginning. Um, could you just tell me a little bit about your childhood and about the seeds of becoming a writer? Yes, absolutely. So um, I was always a very daydreamy um, child who loved reading and loved writing and loved playing um, intense imaginative games. Um, I was pretty much writing from the time I could first hold a pencil so I've got dozens and dozens and dozens of poems and stories and novels that I wrote when I was a little girl. Um, it was pretty much what I did for fun. Um, so I always knew I wanted to be a writer. I've never wanted to do anything else, which kind of made things easy for me in one respect because um, every time I came to a major crossroad moment in my life, I knew that I wanted to be a writer and so I would always choose the path that would take me towards realising my dreams. Um, I got my first poem published when I was 11. I was tremendously excited. It was published in our school magazine, The Weaver. Mm. I was in year six at the junior school at Abbotsley. And um, I came home and I wrote in my diary something along the lines of, well, I've had a poem published. This is the beginning of my career as a writer. <laughs> All my dreams are going to come true. I was 11 years old. So, you know, um, you can tell that I was very passionate about my writing right from a very young age. Mm. And wh where did that come from, the, um, the writing? Because I think your brother and your sister are both writers as well. Yes, that's right. Um, I, I do come from a family of writers so there have been writers um, in just about every single generation of my mother's family back as far as we can trace. Um, it, it, there definitely seems to be a, a writing gene. So my great-great-great-great-grandmother wrote the first children's book published in Australia in 1841. Um, she had amongst her, her ancestors poets and biographers, hymn writers, a memoir writer, you know, there were many, many other writers amongst her cousins and her uncles and her grandparents. Um, and her daughter, Louisa Atkinson, was the first Australian-born female novelist. So that was my great, 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 great aunt. Um, so it was definitely in the blood and we, of course, knew that we, that we came from this, we had this literary heritage. We were brought up on stories about it, um, you know, probably highly romanticised stories about it, but nonetheless. Um, but, I, you know, to tell you the truth, I don't think that's why I wanted to be a writer. To me, it was just a very natural and necessary thing. I was always thinking about writing. I was always writing. I was um, always determined that's how I was going to spend my life. Um, it just seemed really natural to me and I'm always a little bit surprised when I realise that it's not natural to other people, that people don't 
spend all their time daydreaming imaginary people and thinking up imaginary stories and aren't always sneaking away from real life because a particularly beautiful phrase has come into their mind and they have to get it down before they lose it. You know, I don't really know what other people do with their brains if they're not <laughs> imagining all the time. So it was just really natural to me. Um, and I did, of course, grow up in a very bookish family. Both my parents were um, scholarly and we had a vast library of books. We were never, um, it was just very natural in our family to always be reading and always be writing. So is it, you know, nature, is it nurture? I think it's both. Mm. And when did you, um, because I mean, I would have loved to be a writer and I hope I still will, but I always had an image of, um, I, I was, I was, sort of told well you have to get a proper job and that as a writer uh, you're going to be in a in a garret and earning a pittance and it's there's only a very very few number of writers who actually make it um and so you know just don't 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 even think about going there that might be a, that might be a leisure activity but not a, not a career so when did you did you ever have those those doubts and those thoughts well i had those conversations forced upon me in almost exactly the same words as you've just expressed. All through my mid to late teens, I argued passionately and desperately with my mother who said exactly, and I mean, she's absolutely right, and the people who said that to you are absolutely right as well. But to me, the fact that she was saying those things was a, a sign of her doubt in, in my ability as a writer, and I found it very, very hurtful. Um, so, and I was a very passionate and melodramatic teenager so I'd be there I would rather starve in the gutter in the gutter in the gutter in the garret <laughs> um so I was always very very determined and everyone around me was trying to make me be practical and be sensible and 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 all those sort of things but I was absolutely adamant about what it was I was going to do and um the the saving grace for me and my mother because we fought a lot over the writing question, was my English teacher when I was in year 12. And she basically said to me... Which, who was that? Who was your I can't remember her name and that I feel embarrassed admitting that because she was the loveliest teacher. I think it was... Um, Wasn't Mrs Williams? She was um, the drama teacher as well and she was very um, dramatic and... Um, uh, it's the word that I want. Um, you know, she threw her arms around and were all trailing scarves and she taught us Shakespeare and Sylvia Plath and she was wonderful. And I can't believe I can't remember her name. But It I wasn't Mrs. Like, Williams, was it? Do you remember Mrs. I think it might have been. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. I can't, can't remember. Mm. You'd, you'd remember better than me. I always had my nose in a book. Anyway, she said to me, oh, look, Kate, if this is something that, that you really want, of course, that's what you must do. But she said, um, but if I was to give you any advice at all, um, it would be to, if you want to be a great writer, you need to read the great writers. So you should go to university and study literature and read as much as you can. And, and, and that is how you will become, because my idea was I'd quit school, write, a novel in the next month or two, it would be published. I'd be internationally best-selling author. That was as far <laughs> as my plans went. And so it was actually really, really great advice because all my mother wanted me to do was to go to university and 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 have a second a second string to my bow. So I went to university. I studied literature and linguistics um, because I'm fascinated by how language works. And then I did a minor in mass communications and creative writing. And I worked as a journalist after university. And then so I wrote my novel at night. And believe me, it took me a lot longer than a couple of months to get it published. It was about 10 years. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. How long did it take you to write it? The novel that got published was actually I wrote it quite quickly. Um, so I've been working on the same novel um, throughout all of my 20s. I, it had been almost published three times. 
um, but something happened at the last hurdle. Um, I actually quit full-time work as a journalist when I was 25 because I was so frustrated that I was getting no closer to my dream of being a published author. So I, I began to freelance. So I worked two or three days a week as a freelance journalist and then I worked two or three days a week on my novel. Um, I went back to university and I did a Master of Arts in, in creative writing in my late 20s. And um, I actually finished the novel that I've been working on for so many years as my major work for my master's. And I thought, well, what am I going to do now? You know, I'm not going to do, I might as well do something new. And it was the university holidays, which, you know, in, in Australia are about two months over the summer. So all my uni friends were going out partying and going up to Byron Bay and going to the beach and swimming. And I thought, well, I'm going to start a new novel. So I began it in late November and I, I just wrote my little heart out all summer. And by the time I was due to go back to university in late or mid-February, I had written about fifty or 60,000 words. And so I thought, you know, the writing of it had been so joyous in comparison to all my struggles in the previous years. And I felt this kind of bubble of excitement. I thought it was the best thing I'd ever written. So I thought, well, I'm going to try and get it published. And so I did. And in actual fact, it, it ended up, I ended up having an international bidding war for it. It was published the year later and um, it was an instant bestseller and I've made my living from my writing ever since. So, but I did have that long period of um, of trial and error, mainly error, all through my 20s. So my first novel was published when I was 30, mm. which, which was, of course, very young. To me, it seemed very old. <laughs> but, um, you know, I was just lucky enough that that particular novel really hit a chime, really chimed with people. How has your writing changed from, say, when you were a child, that first novel, the second novel, and what you're writing now? What have you learned? I suppose I'm, I'm wondering if you're, if the way that you write is different, what you've learnt in your, because you did a doctorate after your master's, what you've yes, learnt, right. what you've learnt in term from your from your studies in terms of writing. Well, my. My very first novel that I wrote when I was seven, I wrote longhand in a school exercise book and it was about 28 pages long. So I've learned a great deal since then, including that <laughs> five. Um, of course, um, so I, I guess the main thing that I have learned in my quite long career now as a full-time author is um, how to plan more carefully how to manage my time more carefully. I know how long, I have a better idea of how long it's going to take me to, to write a novel. Mm-hmm. Um, I've learnt, I've developed a much thicker hide. I was, you know, um, always flinging myself down and weeping um, over, you know, rejections and criticism in my early 20s. In a, you well, know, now, in, a, in a sufficiently dramatic fashion, I, I, I hope. Exactly. Cecilia, you're getting the idea. <laughs> exactly. You're in throwing yourself on the floor in despair. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, so I'm a lot tougher than I was, which um, is interesting because in actual fact sensitivity is what creative artists need. You know, we need to be very sensitive to the world. We need to be very observant. We need to be very empathetic, always putting ourselves into other people's skin, trying to understand their lives, trying to understand what what drives them, what motivates them. Um, and so you don't want to be hardened at all. It's really important that, that, that you know, we stay sensitive people that care passionately about our craft and our art but I think that what you do learn is that um one person's trash is another person's treasure and we are really writing for our kindred spirits people who love what we love and who love what we do 
there are some people who are never going to like you or your work and that's fine that's that's their loss mm-hmm. so um you become more philosophical is probably the true way to describe it rather than saying you become hardened um and I I mean I know that there are certain types of books that I don't like and certain writers who don't really um you know resonate with you yeah exactly so um I can I, I can forgive others for not liking me. So I, I guess they're the two major life lessons. How to plan and be a little bit more methodical and logical and highly organised because it's a business. It's how I make my living. Um, I have to be reliable. My publishers need to know that I I can I will deliver high quality work on time. Um, I would say managing the life balance, but if I said that, I'd be lying. I keep trying to manage the life balance better, but actually that it's very difficult being a mother, being a daughter, being, you know, a wife, and then also having the secret world. It's very hard to keep the two of them um, from not um, not impacting on the on, on the other mm. but I keep trying mm. there's I mean there's a lot in that that I'd like to go back to um when you say that people um don't always like your work um has there been any particular criticism that has really hurt um not really I mean there have been times when I've read a, a review and it has stung a little bit um but in general, no, I'm pretty lucky because the people who tend to read me and tend to review me tend to be people who love what I do. Mm. Um, and because I write in so many different genres and, and for so many different age groups, it's not like I'm constantly being reviewed by the same small circle of people. Um, and, again, um you know, there's this idea that I have um, about what it means to be a good reader and a bad review, regardless of who it is written by, is actually a real a reflection on an insight into the reviewer because all, all readers project their own preconceptions, their own prejudices, their own malice in some cases. And I actually think if they realised how clearly that came across in their review, they would be a little bit more careful. <laughs> I'm I'm absolutely honest about this. And so sometimes I read a review and I go, oh, sweetie, well, you should have thought before you pressed into on that one. <laughs> it, it doesn't hurt me because it actually reflects well on me. Most readers are intelligent enough to work out that that kind of review is is written out of malice and unkindness, and they'll actually be more likely to buy your book, in because they don't like that person that wrote that horrible review. So it it it, it really does them more harm than it does me. Mm. Also, so, I like to think. No, I think that that's an interesting reflection too on on readers because I find you know in my modest way that. Um, and I don't know if you find this too, that once you've written something and you put it out there, then everyone is reading from their own perspective. And so they see all sorts of stuff in what you've written that you just had no idea was there. I don't know if you have the same. Of course, absolutely. I mean, there's two reasons for that. One is that um, we don't always know what we are doing when we are creating because when you create it rises out of our subconscious, which is a dark and mysterious and sometimes strange land. So sometimes we don't know what we are doing ourselves in our writing and what other people find in it can sometimes astonish us because they see what we didn't know ourselves and sometimes it can be uncomfortably close to the truth. So that's the first thing. And the second thing is is that... Um, as I said, readers are projecting their own lives into the story. So their own worries and their own concerns and, the, and their own angst and their own prejudices, whether they're conscious or unconscious. So reading is always a dance 
with a partner mm. and that partner to you is faceless. You don't know them. Mm. So uh, to, to say that we write alone is actually not true because as soon as our work goes out into the world, whoever reads it brings their own life experience, their own level of intelligence, their own particular interests in it. And the 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 creative work is played out in their mind's eye. Mm. They create the cinema, not the writer. And so you can have a million different readers and all of them have read a different book. Mm. What I find fascinating about, about writing too is that um, the, you're putting the words on a page and you can never describe everything. And so it's it's the it's the little details and the reader then has to fill in all the other bits around that and so everyone's going to fill in all those other bits around it but you i mean if you if you if you wrote absolutely everything a book would become completely unreadable because you would be saying um you know there's the there's the the duna cover is um red and it's got yellow and it's got um and it's got swirls on it, and it's describing the entire thing, and, and leaving nothing to to the reader's imagination. Well, you know, you only describe what needs to be, like you only tell what needs to be told. Mm. Um, it, I, I, I'm just laughing while you're saying that to me because I was teaching last night via Zoom, so I had a class of you know 19 or 20 people, and that's exactly what I was telling them. I was saying that the number one sign of an of an amateur writer is someone that feels that they have to describe every step and every action and everything that can be seen and, you know, will it will take six pages to describe someone walking down a hall and opening a door. Why, in actual fact, none of it, you, you didn't need any of it, just have them in the goddamn room. <laughs> okay, can we just go back to um, you were saying that you did a lot more planning now and you, it was, you were much more structured. Can you tell me about about how you go about planning? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's, it's one of the things that I get asked about a lot. Um, so um, I'm trying to, to think of the best way that I can say it. So I cannot write um, until I can see what, you know, so I, I, until I've, I've visualised and imagined a scene. And um, most of the time we visualise and imagine scenes in our head, in our imagination. But um, there's only so much that our memory can hold, so many scenes, so many situations, so many conversations imagined in our, our mind and carried around with us sometimes for very long periods of time. And human memory is, is faulty. So um, there's only so much that we can carry around with us and it all starts jostling around in our imagination and all these different scenes are all begging us for our attention. Um, well, if you uh, can get in the habit of writing them down and keeping a record of them, then it makes room in your imagination for new scenes that may, and it, it gives you a chance also to deepen and enrich and fully visualise that scene. So people who start writing uh, just with a blank page that have, have, have done no development, no planning, um, what happens with them is, is they find that, that at first they're running on inspiration because they've got all these ideas jostling around. But then as they, as they put them down, they've got nothing else and they run dry very, very soon. And because they're used to writing under the influence of inspiration, which is glorious, it's like a golden rush that irradiates you and you're full of energy and ideas and inspiration and the writing is joyous and easy and then you run dry, you got nothing else, you don't know what to do. Mm. So planning, and there's, you know, planning is a whole spectrum of tools and techniques, a whole spectrum of behaviours. Now, there are some books that can be written in the white-hot version of inspiration and we'll never actually um, need planning. But other books are far more complex and difficult, are full of um, uh, ideas, you know, full of, um, you know, multitudes of characters and subplots and everything like that. And um, those 
you know, those kinds of of stories, I say they're like building a cathedral. So they're immense and subtle and every stone has a counterweight. And if you if if you build it wrong, it's all gonna kind of collapse and crush people. So I teach people how to plan. I teach them a whole range of different types of tools and techniques so that whenever they do run dry, they know what to do. Mm-hmm. And two, it helps them um, understand the structure of their story and how to arrange their scenes into the best possible order. Mm-hmm. So you would know yourself that you sometimes start a book and start reading it. And by the time you've reached the end of the first page or two, you just relax. You go, oh, thank heavens, I'm in the hands of a master. And other times you start reading a book and you go, oh, you know, it just doesn't, it just isn't firing on all points. It's nearly always planning that makes a difference. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so how do you, how do you go from getting, getting an idea to knowing that that's an idea that's a book that's worth writing to the planning stage, to the writing stage. Can you just talk us through that? Absolutely. So um, I keep a journal that I write in every single day and um, it's part of my my natural creative practice is to write every single morning when I'm still in bed before I've got up. When you're closest to your subconscious mind, my journal is really a record of my creative processes. So I don't really write much about what people said or what I'm doing. I write about writing. Um, whenever I get a flash of inspiration, either for the book I'm working on now or for a book I'd like to write in the future or a whole new idea, I, I scribble it down into that journal. And then when I get to the end of my journal, which I go through a notebook about every three or four months. I read through it and I transfer all of my ideas into this notebook. Mm-hmm. So, just a beautiful to show you, book. Yeah, I, I like all my notebooks to, to, to be beautiful. So, um, if I've typed them up, but you can see there, I've just stuck pages in. So this is a book which is simply every page is a different idea for a novel. Mm. Now, most of these I will never be able to write because I have a limited lifespan. (laughs) But to the idea when I get it, then whenever I get a new idea for that particular concept, I write it into this, this is what I call my ideas notebook. Um, I've got different notebooks for different things. So this notebook is where I write my poetry, mm-hmm. for example. Now this is the notebook for the book I'm working on now. So my novel I'm working on now is called The Crimson Thread and it's got a labyrinth at its heart, the labyrinth of, of Cognosis in Crete. And as you can see, it's a crimson notebook with a labyrinth on the cover. Mm-hmm. Um, this is my third notebook. So I've, this is number two and this is number three. Mm-hmm. So to begin with, um, when I get the idea and I know it's going to be my next working project, um, each new idea that I get, I simply record. And then I stick in things like maps, a visually, you know, anything that might be of visual interest to me. Mm-hmm. And um, I, you can see up here, mm-hmm. I've got a chapter and the chapter plan there. So as time goes on, I'm recording all of my ideas as they come so nothing gets lost. I start to begin to order my ideas into some kind of narrative arc, so beginning, a middle and an end, key scenes along the way. I start thinking about decisions like what point of view I'm going to use. It's going to be first person close or first person multiple is it going to be third person close or third person multiple is it going to be a combination of first and third person i start thinking about um who who my major characters are i start thinking i start developing character outlines for those major characters i work out 
what kind of person they are, what do they fear, what do they desire, what are their faults, what are their strengths, what what um, what drives them, what what is their psychology. I start thinking about the dynamics between my characters. I start worrying about things and staying up all night and worrying about and thinking about things. But because I keep a record of my creative thoughts, it means I can constantly go back and look at my early notes, remind myself of things that I might have forgotten, remind myself of things that I haven't yet explored deeply enough or that I need to know. I draw up lists of books I need to buy because most of my books are historical fiction. So I start compiling research books. And then as I'm researching and discovering my story, I'm adding it constantly. So I'm building timelines, building narrative arcs, building character outlines. Now, I don't start writing until um, probably almost six months to a year after I've begun working on the book. So I do a lot of work before I start writing. Now, the other thing that you need to remember is that I I sell off an outline, not from a completed work. And so I have to deliver a fairly well-developed, strong concept to my publishers and to my agents before they buy the book. And so that work is how I sell my novels. Once I've got a contract, I'm paid, then I start writing. Hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I'm not sure how coherent No, absolutely. Um, how long is an outline? Um, so a, a synopsis is usually a page to a page and a half. An outline is usually eight to ten pages. Mm-hmm. And the other thing I wanted to come back to, Kate, was you were talking about... Um, not getting the life balance, not getting the life balance quite right. Can you tell me a bit more about that? I don't know that I would describe it as not getting it quite right. I would say that I would describe it as being it being a constant challenge. And I think this is true of most people, um, particularly when they're juggling work and family. Um, I work from home, um, which means that, and I always have, so my study is right next to the kitchen which means that, you know, the kids wander in and out and, Mum, there's no juice and what's for dinner and when will dinner be? And there's always the chores of the house to be done. Um, um, and so how I manage the challenges of being a mother and a full-time writer, which is very intense, is I tend to have, um, I try and compartmentalise my life quite well. I have quite strict routines. So I like to be at my desk at a certain time every single day. And then I like to finish at a certain time every day. I don't often achieve this, but so that I have time to talk to my family, hear any of their problems, help my daughter with her homework, make sure that the school uniforms have been washed so we don't have a major crisis in the morning, that sort of thing. So if I had my way, all I'd ever do is write. I would write and do nothing else. And so having a family is very grounding for me. It's it, it's good for me not to write all the time. But I find it hard because I'd rather be writing. I mean, who, who wants to do housework? <laughs> It's an on, it's an ongoing joke in my family because when my house is absolutely pristine, it's a sign that the writing's going badly. Because I go and do a few chores while I'm thinking through the next problem, and then as soon as I have the solution to the problem, I abandon. So there's all these half finished jobs. <laughs> Only half the washing got hung out, and then I'm back at, at my desk. Um, and. My, my kids also like to joke because when I'm writing, I'm absolutely, utterly absorbed into the world that I'm creating, which means I'm not that good at knowing what's going on outside. So we have to have all sorts of alarms and things to make sure that I stop and go pick my children up. So luckily my husband is very practical and he looks after a lot of the um, the more practical aspects of parenting. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, I mean, it's a probably a challenge that I think all of you know, working parents face, especially in times of, you know, lockdown. 
we're probably having more more of an idea of what it's like to be um, you know a worker working at home parent it's not easy yeah that's exactly right um though I love it um I love my study um I love working from home I'm glad I don't have to cope with I don't know traffic and transport and things like that um it's just that often when I want to write I can't write and so I do a lot of my writing in the cracks of the days so I'm I'll often be cooking and working in my notebook or reading a research book or um writing a scene longhand because I can't get to my computer I I go to pick up my school my daughter from school and I'll be out in the car I'll be writing other mothers will be playing on their phones. I'll be, the, I'll actually be writing. So um, if I can't sleep, I get up and I come down and I often work late at night in the darkness because the house is quiet. So it's just a matter, you know. As I said, it's not that I, I, I think I manage really well. It's just a challenge. How old are your children? Well, two of them are quite grown up now and at university. And my eldest daughter is 16, almost 17, and she's the only one who's still at school. Mm-hmm. But all of my children had grown up with a mother as a writer. So, you know, I've always built my writing routine about my, around my children's routines. Mm-hmm. Um, Kate, can you tell me about your most recent book that you wrote with your, your sister? Yes, I'd love to. So the book is called Searching for Charlotte, The Fascinating Story of Australia's First Children's Author. Um, my sister and I wrote it together because it's inspired by the life, or not, it's uh, inspired by the life of our great-great-great-great-grandmother who wrote the first children's book published in Australia. Her name was Charlotte Waring Atkinson um, and her book was published in 1841. So this year, 2021, is the 180th anniversary of the publication of that book. Now, both my sister and I are full-time authors with very hectic um, writing, publishing and touring schedules because when you're a, a career writer, you spend a lot of time touring and talking and publicising your book. It's, it's, it's very intense. But we knew that if we, were going, if we were going to write this book, this was the year it had to come out to celebrate the 180th anniversary. Um, you know, who knows where we'll be in 20 years' time for the 200th anniversary. So it, it was kind of now or never. And so we decided, let's just do it. So we both had to clear out space in our usual publishing schedules, which is difficult because we are both contracted a few years out in advance. Mm-hmm. And um, but we, you know we just set out um, what what our publishers wanted wanted us to do was um, to combine a memoir of our lives, our struggles as mothers and writers, what it was like to grow up in a family with such a rich literary heritage. Because trust me, everyone is so jealous of us for having all these famous writers in our in our ancestry. Um, and combine that memoir with a biography of our ancestor. Um, so it was it was a really interesting and unusual project. Um, both Belinda and I have worked as journalists before, um, and we have a lot of experience um, in research because we're both historical novelists. So it wasn't as difficult as it might be for another writer to change genres so dramatically. Um, it was interesting, of course, and challenging working with my sister. But, you know, we're very close um, and and we're very similar and we were, you know, all we wanted was to write the very best book that we could. Um, and I think we were very respectful in honouring each other's space and each other's point of view and allowing each other to have, to express our true voice which is so important in writing, whenever you try and be someone apart from who you are is when you get stuck and when the artificial, you know, when the writing becomes very artificial and stilted and sounds wrong. So you, you must always be true to oneself. When you're collaborating with another writer, that could be a little bit difficult. But we, you know, we negotiated all of that and the book was, has been received really well 
just been um, longlisted for the Indies Award, which is um, an award here in Australia um, by all the independent booksellers who choose their favourite books of the year. And it's, it's, you know, it's quite prestigious because these are the most important booksellers in the country. It's a great joy to know that they picked our book as one of the best books of the year. Mm. Well, congratulations. I mean, that's a, that's a huge achievement. Thank you. Um, can you just tell me a little bit more about the writing process with your sister? How did you manage that? So the first thing that we did is that once we decided that we were going to write the book, we prepared an outline, which um, I wrote and then sent to Belinda and then she added her thoughts and her comments and rewrote parts of it and sent it back to me until, and, and back and forth until we had um, an outline that we were happy with. Then we sent it to the National Library of Australia, who we thought would be the best publishers for a project like this. Um, the the a National Library has the largest um, archive of Atkinson material in the world and and they publish a lot of, of this type of non-fiction book and we knew they'd do a really beautiful job. Um, and then we sold the concept, um, made a few adjustments according to how they, you know, what, what kind of vision they had um, for the book. Then Belinda and I, we went out for lunch we ordered a bottle of champagne, we drank the champagne and we drew up a plan for the book, a fairly simple, straightforward plan where we, we identified the key things that we wanted to write about, what a rough order, and obviously if you want about someone's life, the chronological order of the key events of their life are obviously going to give you your key chapters. Um, we uh, found an equal number of key chapters and then we divided them between us there was no argument there was no worry or concern Belinda basically said oh I'd really love to write that chapter and I went excellent that's binnies okay then I really want to write this chapter she said oh yes that'd be fantastic you do that so well oh thank you darling what one do you want oh I have this one okay you have that one I'll have that one so in about five minutes we'd finished off the bottle of champagne had the whole book planned knew what we were each doing we made a couple of promises to each other. One was that our, our relationship as sisters was far more important than the book and that we would always put our love for each other first. Mm. The second one was that we wouldn't try and merge our voices. We wouldn't be, you know, some kind of royal we. Belinda would write as Belinda and I would write as Kate and we would write our chapters the way that we saw fit. The final decision on how, on how it was going to be written and what kind of tone and what was left in and what was put in was our decision. And that was a really, really um, clever, wise, you know, helped not having arguments later. And then the next decision that we made was that if there was anything that we really felt passionately about, then we would leave it up to the National Library and our editor there to be the adjudicator or to make make the decision so if Belinda really didn't like what I'd done in my chapter and I really liked it when would go oh Amelia what do you think and then we would trust whatever she said and in actual fact we didn't actually really need to do that too much but um, that was a really wise decision as well <laughs> then we just simply set to work on our our chapters you know we had a, a simple plan and we expanded our plan out you know each working on our own chapters we did the research, we identified what we needed to know, we said about I'm discovering it, and then we and then we wrote the book. And what were the, some of the things that you discovered about her life? You know, one of our major worries at the beginning of the process was that there was nothing new to discover. The Atkinson family is, you know, quite a well-known colonial family, and because there were so many writers in it, um, so... Charlotte Wayne Atkinson's husband, James, wrote several books as well. Um, obviously, their daughter was the, was the first Australian-born female novelist. There were lots and lots written about them, and our major worry was that that was it. We wouldn't discover anything new. But right from the moment that we, that we began, we made a series of astonishing, astonishing discoveries. Um, 
I'll give you a couple of examples. I don't want to overwhelm you. But um, one of the first ones that we discovered was that there were, the Mitchell Library had a sketchbook of Charlotte's that included the most exquisite family portraits of all the girls in the family, including our great-great-great-grandmother, that had been misfiled. Mm. And so the library did not know it had this incredible treasure. The only known portrait of Louisa Atkinson as a child the only known self-portrait of Charlene Waring Atkinson as a young woman and then again as a mother. I mean, this was an astonishing discovery. That was our first and a very exciting one for us. Um, now, one of the challenges for us when we were researching and writing this book is that we were brought up on all these family stories, old history and we imagined that many of them would be unprovable or would be proved to be wrong or at the very least sort of glamorised, dramatised. One of our favourite stories growing up was that um, Charlotte Atkinson, when she was travelling out from Britain to Australia, um, she first met James Atkinson, the man she was to marry, when he walked up the gangplank and he tipped his hat to her which was quite bold in those days to tip your hat to a woman you hadn't been introduced to. And then um, there was a great storm while they were on the ship um, and the ship was uh, flooded with, with great waves and Charlotte was swept off her feet and dragged under the water and because of all of her great heavy Victorian skirts, she couldn't swim up. And James sort of swept in and saved her, dragged her out of the water and saved her life. And then she was, you know, shivering with shock and cold and he got his plaid cloak and he wrapped her in this plaid cloak and then um, very soon after they were engaged. Now, as girls growing up, Belinda and I used to think, oh, so romantic. But, of course, we had no proof that it existed. So another of the kind of discoveries that my sister made was she found Charlotte's shipboard journal that she wrote on board the Cumberland on this, you know, but it's a very long journey from Britain to Australia in those days. And she describes this scene in her diary. Wow. And we could not believe it because here was proof that the family history, these romantic and dramatic story was true and he wrapped her in his plaid cloak. But the other reason why the sketchbook that we discovered um, lost in the archives of the Mitchell Library was so exciting is because she drew a picture of herself as a young woman wrapped in a plaid cloak. Um, and, you know, to me, like, this sketchbook is like a family album of photographs, beautiful photographs. She was sketching her family and her family memories for her daughter. It was given to one of her daughters. Um, and so it's a little bit like, um, you know, this is a day that I got engaged and there's me in my plaid cloak. So the sketchbook was very special to us. Just one more. There's so many, but, you know, I don't want to um, tell you everything. But my other favourite discovery was um, when Louisa Atkinson died, which she did when she was very, very young, um, there was a lot of obituaries written for her because she was already very famous, even though she was only in her late 20s and or, you know, maybe her early 30s. Um, and many of the obituaries talked about how her mother was uh, a very you know, clever um, author of numerous books for children, that's a quote. And Belinda and I, the first time we read it, for all that sort, we only know of one book that she wrote, the first book published in Australia, A Mother's Offering to Her Children, by a lady long resident in New South Wales. But, you know, and then we saw it again in a different obituary. Louisa Atkinson's mother is the author of several uh, amusing and instructive tales for the young. And then we found the third reference to her having written more than one book so I thought well we've got to try and find out what this book is so I undertook this incredible kind of detective um search following the like these little clues 
And we ended up discovering that um, a there had been a book published in 1832, which is nine years before Mother's Offering, um, published in London, um, called Amusing and Instructive Tales by Peter Prattle. Um, and I did a kind of linguistic analysis of it. And I really, there's a lot of evidence to show that it could well have been Charlotte. And I, I must admit, I think that it was. Mm, mm, gosh. But certainly you whetted my appetite to read the book and to hear about oh, the. I don't even enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I mean, Kate, I could talk to you all day, but um, there, there's two final questions I'd like to ask you. Um, one is the fact that you're a woman writer. Does that have any any impact? Positive? Oh yes, of course. You know, um, the you know what I choose to write about, how I choose to write it, and who reads my books are all impacted by it. Um, I'm particularly drawn to telling the stories of um, of women who have been unjustly forgotten by history. Many of my historical novels, in particular, my historical novels for adults. Um, a, a bibliographic fiction. So I tell the lives of women who once really lived and who have been, you know, unfairly ignored, whose voices have been silenced, whose achievements have been lost. So Bitter Greens, for example, which is probably my best known and certainly my best selling novel, um, is inspired by the life of Charlotte Rose. De Camont de la Force, who was a French noblewoman at the court of Louis the Sixteenth, so Louis the Fourteenth, um, who wrote the fairy tale Rapunzel. Now we think of Rapunzel, well, first of all, as a Grimm story told by the Grimm brothers. We don't realize it's a much, much older story. She wrote her version of the tale in 1697. Now she was the most fascinating woman. She had. Um, an affair with Moliere. (laughs) She she wrote erotic um, secret histories of the king's um, ancestors and he was scandalised and he had her locked up in a a convent. So she wrote Rapunzel, a story about a girl locked up in a tower. Well, she herself was unjustly locked up in a convent as if it, it was a prison. I think that's really interesting. She had an affair with a much younger man um, and his family, to keep him away from her, locked him up in the family castle. So she hired a troupe of travelling actors to, to go there and, and put on a play and she went with them disguised as a dancing bear. She was amazing. I mean, as soon as I read about the anecdote about how she disguised herself in a bearskin, to so that she could rescue her much younger lover. Well, I knew I had to write a book about her. So I often say she was the most fascinating woman ever forgotten by history. Another one of my novels, The Wild Girl, tells the story of Dorchen Wild, which um, is pronounced Wild, but is spelt wild and means wild. Um, she was the primary source for the Grimm Brothers' famous fairy tales. She told about a quarter of all the fairy stories that they collected in their first 1812 collection. But her name is never mentioned. She's never acknowledged. She she is given no credit whatsoever. And yet some of the world's most beautiful and most famous fairy tales were told by this one young woman. And she was 18, 19 and 20 when she told them to, to the Grimm brothers. As soon as I, I read about her, I knew I had to write about her. Um, her story was just extraordinary. Um, and, I mean, that took me two or three years. of. I mean, we didn't even know her birth date mm-hmm. because the birth dates of girls was, were not recorded in oh the my. parish register. Oh, my goodness. Only boys. Unbelievable. Now, everyone knows who the Grimm brothers are, but no one knows that most of their stories were told to them by women, not not just Dorchenwild, but other young women as well. And all of their names have been forgotten. They have got none of the credit for these extraordinary stories. And I had to do something about it. 
Mm. So that's the type of book that I write. Another book of mine called Beauty and Thorns is about the women of the pre-Raphaelite movement of art, artists and poets. So everyone knows about pre-Raphaelite, all the male artists who painted them, but they don't know the stories of the women who were their models mm-hmm. and who, who, who painted and wrote poetry and struggled to live a, a fully realised creative life, but because they lived in Victorian times, they were forgotten. Mm-hmm. So that's what I like to do. Yeah, I love that. Um, I mean, the, another of the women that I've interviewed is uh, called Jan Roberts, and she's written history of women, but um, you know, serious history. And I just love the way that you are able to to bring back um, the women's influence in in history, but through 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 novels and through and in a way that makes it very easy for people to read and to be captured and have their imaginations inspired by these women I just think that's I just think that's fantastic it just is sends shivers down my spine hearing that one of the things that makes me so proud is that when I I began to write bitter greens um and you googled the the name of my heroine Charlotte Rose did a force you could get about three hits Mm. on google and there was, and the only kind of Wikipedia type entry for her was seven lines long in French. And now, if you Google her name, there are millions and millions and millions of articles, essays, reviews. She has she, she has been saved from obscurity. There is now an English Wikipedia entry on her, mm-hmm. and it's all due to me. Bravo, Kate. Okay. Oh, so like <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and the last the last um, question I'd like to ask is if you've got a message for people who are listening. Yes, I think that I do. Um, I think about this a lot, um, about what, what I think constitutes a, a life worth living. To me, I think it's very, very important that we that we be true to who we are. It actually makes me a little bit sad, Cecilia, that you wanted to be a writer when you were a child and everyone around you uh, cramped you and stifled you and tried to force you into a very narrow groove. And I imagine that you that you ran along in that groove for a very long time, knowing all the time, longing in your heart to be more than that and to be who you were meant to be, who you were born to be. And the struggle it must have taken you to cast off those shackles and face up to and stand up and work, start working towards who you truly are. I mean, that takes enormous courage and enormous strength. And I'm sure that it was very, very difficult for you. Now, I think that there are many, many women in, in particular who are unable to stand up like you have because the weights the iron shackles that have been weighed on their soul are so heavy that they're unbreakable. And that seems to me a very wrong thing. And so my message to anyone who might be listening is the first thing you need to do is know that you have been shackled, know who you are meant to be, and then fight with all of your strength, every single ounce of your strength to be who you truly are. Because that, that, that is where joy lies and that is where truthfulness lies and that is where uh you can truly blossom in all sorts of extraordinary ways people who are forcibly cramped and forced into a mold that is unnatural to them it nearly always breaks out in other ways unhappiness depression anxiety uh envious malice cruelty bitterness I see it again and again and again. Bitterness is probably the, the very best word. And often the people who are doing the cramping are those who have been so cramped themselves. They're like little bonsai plants when they could have been an oak. Mm. And so my, my message to all of you is if this it has been done to you, own it, know it, say to myself, and I'm sure they all meant well, doesn't matter, break free. 
be true to yourself and be as much as you are capable of being. And yes, you are going to fail and yes, you're going to fall and yes, you're going to hurt and yes, you're going to be in pain and yes, you're going to have moments of mortification and doubt and yes, you're going to cry. But my God, you will be living a full life, not a half life. And I think that's the very best that any of us can do. Kate, if I could reach out over the through the internet and put my arms around you and give you a hug, I would. That is one of the most... We have a virtual hug. That is one of the most beautiful things I think I've ever heard and I'm, I'm just so, so touched by that. Aww. Thank you. Thank you for all your time. Thank, Thank you, you for all that you're doing. I, I just think it's amazing. Thank you. And I hope that all of your ventures shine for you and that you blossom. I hope that all your attempts to be that great oak tree come true for you. Thank you so much. I hope you've enjoyed this week's episode of Brave New Women. So many of the women I interview say things like, I'm not very good at interviews or do you think people will be interested? And these are some of the most amazing women I think you'll, you'll ever hear from. There are certain podcast sites where you can leave a rating and a review about podcasts, Podcast Addict, Podcast Chaser, and it would be a fantastic way of boosting this woman's confidence to leave a review. Thank you for listening.